On the Way Home is proudly supported by Ellis Dawn Community Builders, a group formed within the Ellis Dawn group of companies to assist those who wish to deliver affordable and sustainable housing by providing development management services and leveraging Ellis Dawn's turnkey cradle-to-grave project capabilities. We incorporate all that a world-leading development, construction, and building services company has to offer to provide innovative and sustainable developments that connect and energize communities. Our offering is not simply a development and construction solution. It's a holistic and comprehensive approach that ensures the delivery of assets that communities can be proud of. To learn more, please visit www.communitybuilders.ellisdon.com. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I am one of your hosts, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. And as always, I'm joined by the multi-talented Stefania from the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. Steph, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you doing today? Good, good. You know, it's the weather's just starting to change a little bit as we record this. It's still beautiful mm-hmm. and we're still uh, getting the tail end of summer, although we're into fall so uh, I can't complain and lots of stuff as always happening at uh, Blue Door. I know you're doing a lot of work right now with the Canadian Alliance, what's happening there? Yeah, so I mean, right on the heels of finishing up the vote housing campaign, now we are all about the 2021 National Conference on Ending Homelessness happening on November 3rd and 4th. So if you are interested, uh, check out conference.ch.ca. Sorry for the shameless plug. Uh, So yeah, just in the throes, it's, you know, uh, not, it's just around the corner. So that's where a lot of my focus is right now. Yeah. What about Blue Door? Well, you know what, we're working on a few things and, and some of it's come out of some of the podcasts we've done, the people we've connected, we're, we're talking about community land trusts and uh, we got some exciting news last week from one of our funders that we're going to be able to add a nurse uh, to our team, which is really cool because um, as we've heard from many people we've had on the show, mm-hmm. health and housing are so connected. Uh, so it's an exciting time for us to uh, help move that forward. Yeah, that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah, and speaking of excitement, listen, let me tell you about the awesome guests that we have on our show, as always. The quality just keeps getting better and better. Um, This time, um, I am so pleased to have a friend of mine who's been doing incredible work in York Region for a long time, and beyond York Region before that, too. So we have with us from the United Way, Christine Hill, and she's the Community Investment Manager there. Uh, Christine's responsible for administering implementing and implementing the Reaching Home um, in York Region, Canada's community-based homelessness strategy in partnership with municipal government and service providers, Blue Door being one of those. So it's very cool to have Christine here. And we also have Isabel Cascante, um, who is the Director of Research, Public Policy and Evaluation with United Way of Greater Toronto. Uh, Isabel is responsible for developing and implementing the organization's research and evaluation strategies 
based on strong evidence base, a commitment to addressing systemic discrimination and a solid foundation of partnerships and relationships. And before we got going on this, um, it wasn't a question for I, I said to Isabel, being a, a policy person, I said, do you agree that homelessness is a result of bad policy? And she gave the only correct answer, which was absolutely, uh, which kicked us off well. Uh, Isabel and Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, we're really excited that the two of you were able to make time for us. And uh, so we've started this sort of new thing where we'd like to kick off the podcast uh, with all of our guests with a, with the same question. And that question is, uh, what does home to mean to you? And Christine, why don't we start with you? Sure. For me, I guess I'd like to use an analogy. Um, home just feels like that warm blanket that's wrapped around you. It's a place where you feel content. For me, it's a place where you feel safe, and it's something that belongs to you. Uh, it's, a, it's a place where you spend time with family and friends, where you share past memories, build new memories. But it's also, for me, a sense of community and being connected with your community, in particular your neighbors, engaging with your neighbors, knowing who your neighbors are, being able to rely on them, them being able to rely on you. And I think most importantly for me, like if I'm away from home, that's the place I want to come back to. And it's the place where my heart just drives to it. So that's what home is to me. I'll, I'll pick up from, from there if, if I may. And it's really similar. It's really, uh, for me, all about identity, who we are, and that sense of belonging. Uh, I've moved around a bit uh, throughout the pro or not throughout the province, but throughout the country. And so I know that kind of where we live, whether it's at the level of the country, the province, the city, and really down to that really neighborhood level influences so much about our, our lives and our decisions and our opportunities. And so uh, I guess I take a pretty broad uh, understanding of home, not just that kind of individual uh, space, but also the community surrounding it. And, and much like Christine, for me, home is really the foundation of, of our, our lives. Both excellent answers and well thought out. Listen, um, the United Way does incredible work, has for years. Um, and they continue to do that. And some of the work they do is around research and, and producing uh, groundbreaking and impactful reports. Um, Isabel, can you talk to us a little bit about what is, well, and then we have the social capital report. So what is social capital and how does it relate to the United Way of the GTA's work? Yeah, so the kind of a common definition of social capital, it describes the vibrancy of social networks the extent to which individuals and communities trust one another and rely upon one another. And, and it's really considered our, you know, quote unquote, social DNA. It's, it's the foundation upon which thriving communities are built. The reason that we at United Way Greater Toronto wanted to dig into social capital a bit deeper was because we know how essential social capital is for communities to function. And again, from the individual level all the way to kind of the level of the nation and beyond. It's important that people from different backgrounds find common ground. It's important for residents uh, because it helps them access opportunities that will improve their lives. 
the, the research that we did really builds on a wealth of previous research on social capital and social capital theory. And, and kind of the base finding of that research is that social capital, for those people who can access it, makes us smarter, uh, it makes us richer, it makes us safer, it makes us better able to govern democratically, it enables our institutions and economies to function. And so it's, it's critical. What we wanted to understand was um, kind of in the context of Peel region and York region, which is what our studies focused on, who has access to social capital and, and how does that manifest in communities? Um, our, our look at social capital started pre-pandemic uh, and in some ways we've learned so much more about social capital over the past 18 months and kind of working through this crisis and, and there's a, a lot of emerging, really interesting emerging research indicating that trust-based connections and networks uh, support not only immediate response and supported immediate response to COVID uh, and, and other crises, but are also linked to faster recovery and more equitable rebuild. And so this is something that uh, that we're thinking about. I know you're, you're, you're both thinking about that as well. Um, if I may share a little bit about our studies, we released them in July. Uh, like I said, there were two studies looking at social capital in Peel region and social capital in York region. They're the first to dig into social capital in, in the regions. And, you know, in large part, the findings are really positive. This is a real like, kind of assets-based uh, type of report in that we know that social capital in the region is strong. People have high levels of trust for one another. They feel a sense of community belonging. Uh, they're part of social networks and they have civic connections. They also have access to the neighborhood supports that they need. So that's all really positive. It's great news. Um, you know, there, there is also the finding, and, and this isn't new, this is uh, connected also to other research. We find that um, social capital is not equally distributed. People with lower incomes and less financial security face greater barriers to accessing social capital. Uh, so just to bring us back to the conversation today at, at United Way, we build social capital. That's part of the work that we do. And we do that by working in communities, working across sectors, working with the great agencies uh, that lead the work on the ground, by working with the regions and the municipalities, uh, working with communities, people on the ground, partners and, and collaborators really, really more broadly uh, to identify and respond to gaps and, and inequities in communities. And so these networks and trust-based relationships are at the core of that work. That's, that's so great too. Uh, so thank you for that context. I think that's really important. Um, and, and so I'm wondering now if you can sort of walk us through how social capital intersects with housing and homelessness. And Isabel, maybe we'll start with you. Great. Yeah, there are, there are a few ways to look at social capital from a housing and homelessness perspective. I think the first consideration is the importance of personal and kind of uh, personal and organizational networks to buffer against homelessness. So if we look at this from kind of a micro or individual level, having a network of close friends and family who can provide a temporary housing solution you know, couch surfing, maybe you can stay in an extra bedroom in a moment of need. That can make a difference in, in somebody's time of need. Obviously, that tends to be a short-term solution. Um, in the longer term or medium term, connections and networks can play a role in, in vouching for somebody to help them get approval for an apartment uh, or to act as a reference to land employment, which provides then the financial capital uh, to find housing. 
For those who are already unhoused, we know that networks and relationships uh, become really crucial and, and can uh, form a, a, a crucial support system for people. And that really highlights kind of the humanness of, of the experience uh, and, and people experiencing homelessness. At a organizational or maybe a meso level, we know, and, and, and you both know this far better than I do, but I think just to mention the need for deep trust-based relationships between agencies and people experiencing homelessness or, or at risk of experiencing homelessness. And so these strong social relationships are really vital uh, for the success of rehousing programs, for instance. Uh, strong relationships also between and among organizations is critical to ensure a strong network of agencies that are working together uh, as well, working with the uh, corporate sector and government sectors to ensure the best outcomes for people. And then finally, at a kind of at a, at a larger scale or at a macro level, access to social capital influences opportunities. And this is, you know, we, we see this reflected in the in the research that we did, our connections, our relationships, and our sense of kind of that sense of solidarity and reciprocity within those relationships, the, the desire to support one another and the feeling of being bound by this common cause, that can facilitate access to opportunities, which then facilitates access to the financial capital, uh, which is so critical as well. And so um, the barriers, the structural barriers that keep people from building social and financial capital they're fundamentally structural. We can refer to uh, systemic racism, kind of broad-based discrimination and, and precarious employment, just to name a few. And so these structural barriers really influence people's ability to find and keep suitable housing in the region. Uh, and, and as we know, the affordability crisis uh, is, is so ingrained here as well. So as we say in the reports, we really have to address systemic issues impacting uneven distribution of social capital to mitigate impacts of unequal access to opportunity. Uh, and this includes unequal access to safe, secure, uh, decent, and affordable housing. So, yeah, as, Isabella, I think it, to, to expand on what you were saying is like, you know, when I look to York Region, where it's been the focus of my work for the last 18 months up in York Region, as, as Michael indicated earlier, um, I think we've seen this, you know, come out quite evidently, both with COVID and just around the access that people are having to services and the way we, the networks have had to come together to be able to be very nimble and to be responding to, to the impacts of the pandemic on our homeless population. And so, you know, when we think about, um, when we think about what the critical services our agencies have had to do as a network, they've had to come together. And I think one of the critical things that we have started to learn, historically, we've tended to think of clients belonging to the organization. And so the organization, when the client comes into them, they'll see them as belonging to them. But I would say over the past couple of years, organizations have really started that shift and thinking about the individual as an individual across the sector and how do the organizations work together to support that individual across the sector as opposed to belonging to one organization. And that I think has only enriched the services and has enriched the opportunities for our, un our persons that are unhoused. And when you talk about some of the barriers that they face on a systemic level, we see this time and time again with the landlords and and you know and and part of it's because there's very little housing available 
but we hear often from our partners about, uh, you know, especially single parent families that are led by women or even our youth populations about how they are discriminated against with the landlords in being able to seek housing. And some of that is just pure perception, you know, the fear that they're not going to get the rents paid or that the kids are going to be really loud and be disruptive in the environment that they're in or that the youth are going to, you know, start bringing in a whole bunch of other youth and really starting to impact the the sort of that environment of the housing around them. And so we see this from on an ongoing basis. I think one of the critical pieces of work that is happening nationally is the reaching home strategy that we are working on. And one of the critical pillars of that is coordinated access and that access to the system. And it really is looking at how do individuals who are either currently experiencing homelessness or at risk of becoming homeless, how are they getting into service? How are they accessing those services? Are Is it based on who they just know or the agencies that they know or the other person that they know that is also homeless that tells them about the resources? Or do we look at a broader system of care for these individuals to say that no matter what door you knock on, you're going to get the right service at the right time? for the right moment that you are in, as opposed to um, being lucky about who you might be connected to in order to get that service. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. So interesting. Um, I was thinking back when we were talking about equity and connections and relationships, um, there's a gentleman in the U.S. out of Chicago, Ryan Dowd, who's, who's known as the Homeless Librarian. Um, he does a lot of teaching. Uh, he runs uh, emergency housing in Chicago, but he also does a lot of teaching for librarians on educating them around people experiencing homelessness coming into the libraries. One of the things he was saying once is that you, quite often you hear, um, you know, we're all one paycheck away from experiencing homelessness. And he said, not true at all. He said, because it does come down to relationships. He said... When you think about it, we're all, yes, maybe financially, but you might have a family that wouldn't let you go to the street or a place to stay or a couch or someone that could connect you to someone else. So when you don't have those connections that's and you don't have the income, that's when you're truly one, you know, one paycheck away from, uh, from that. And, you know, as we talk about uh, equity, um, maybe we can get you to talk about how a social capital impact um uh, impacts equitable access to services. Isabel, we'll, we'll start with you and then we'll go over to Christine. Yeah, I think Christine uh, started referencing a little bit here around kind of who you know and that coordinated aspect. And, and put most simply, when we have access to networks, to people, to services and programs, and, and ideally those services and programs are, are in our communities already, um, when we trust our institutions and we know how to 
kind of navigate those institutions, we're far more likely to access services. We, we, that means uh, that we know they exist and we know how to interact with them. Uh, from a financial lens, you know, there are obviously uh, distinctions between access to services and access to opportunities, um, depending on kind of what neighborhood you grow up in and, and uh, what family conditions uh, you, you are surrounded by. And so kids whose families are better off financially uh, have more connections, more opportunities and better outcomes. And that's because they have access to uh, services like good schools, community infrastructure, like parks and the libraries, Michael, that you were just uh, referencing and, and other organizations. And, and so they have, you know, they, they have increased opportunities for um, social and economic mobility, if you will. The opposite is true for kids whose families are less financially secure and so what happens, and we see this playing out across the region, is this growing uh, polarization and, and segregation within, within certain communities. And so for experience, people experiencing homelessness, uh, supports that provide those connections and that help people navigate those systems are crucial. And I think it's both of those, uh, both of those considerations, the uh, availability and accessibility of those services and, and the ability to know how to navigate. And so Christine, when you were talking about kind of that one door and, and a broad system of care and coordinated access, that, that, that's so critical um, to, to ensure that people are getting the services they need in a timely manner. And so we really need this strong strong system uh, that's equitable, that's transparent, and that offers a range of solutions depending on the needs. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, certainly I would agree to Isabel, and, and, and as you and even as Michael was talking uh, earlier, it brought me back, I want to say 19 months ago, just pre-pandemic. Uh, we were, uh, uh, through our work and reaching home up in uh, York region, we had uh, brought together a, a persons with lived experience group to talk to them about their experience in York region in accessing services and how it was working for them. And, um, and you know, and consistently what I heard from the individuals is that once they got connected to services, they actually, for the most part, felt that they were served quite well and that there were really genuine individuals working in this field who wanted to support them. But I did hear from a few that it all depended on who you got and who you got connected to. And it was like the luck of the draw for some. But I also heard a couple people talk about as well in terms of of uh, the person's background. And, and I remember one person spoke quite openly about uh, comparing herself to another person who whose background was in nursing uh, and um, went through some considerable hardships, became homeless. And, um, and then the other person actually was from a low income background, lived in poverty most of her life, um, did not finish high school. Uh, and so, you know, sort of went from job to job that were very low income jobs. And her experience was that she felt that the person, this other person that she had spoken to, got better service because she was deemed or seemed 
to be uh, more likely to be able to move forward and be a stronger contributor to society because of her professional background. And I remember hearing that, and that has never left me. That has really, you know, struck at the core for me. And because when I look at persons and persons experiencing homeless, they're all individuals and they're individuals first, and they all have a story no matter where they come from. And so I think for me, hearing that story, even though it was there, the, the conversation was mostly positive, it's what really struck me is that as we look at that no wrong door, <laughs> and as we look at that is ensuring that all individuals that walk through a door um, are going to get the same level of service and the same equitable access, no matter where they come from. Um, and I think to your point, Isabel, when you said that, you know, there's a variety of options needed, it's so true. Historically, in our sector, and, and Mike would know this well from Blue Doors and his previous work life for 360 Kids, is that, you know, many years ago, the response was emergency shelter. Come into emergency shelter and we'll provide services to you. We've learned long and hard that, that yes, there is a need for emergency shelter and, and to get people housed and, and, you know, and if they need emergency shelter, but we also have learned and as to Michael's point, there are a network of other supports out there. It could be a family, it could be friends. And so how do we look at at those options when someone is walking, knocking on the door. So diversion efforts, um, you know, in York region and, and Michael was part of creating this, you know, we have the first ever night stop program in Canada. And, you know, and that is a host family program. And, you know, so youth who are at that cusp of walking away from home for whatever reason, we know that if they get into that shelter system, it's going to be so hard for them to turn around. And so a program like a host home actually puts them into that program, supports them with family um, until they can maybe be reunited family or some other options. So, so critical that when we're looking at this network of service and social capital, that we actually look at that broad range of services and that we make sure we pull on that individual's network, whether it's a friend, whether it's a family member, and it may not be in local community. So we've got to make sure that when we talk about networks, and I think when I described what home meant to me, it's, you know, who are my connections? Who are my networks? So that if I ever become homeless, those questions get asked of me. It's so interesting, Chrissy, when you when you talk about diversion, diversion is so simple. And, and yeah. it kind of bothers me, like, why don't we think of this like 15 years ago, yeah. uh, simply just asking really a few questions before we assume, right, that they we I think the assumption was always made, if you're calling and you need shelter, obviously, you know, there's no family connections, there's, there's a bunch of assumptions made that many times are incorrect. And, and if you just ask a few questions, we can actually have people avoid coming into the system, a system that's already overcrowded. Um, yeah, so it's brilliant, but uh, as many brilliant ideas, very, very uh, simple. And now, Chris, you, you talked about this a little bit. Um, you know, it was always difficult times um, with the uh, ending and preventing homelessness um, so in, in the region you're working in, York region, but then we got hit 19 months ago with this pandemic and kind of a different response uh, what was needed for this, right? As things changed rapidly. Can you talk a little bit about how social capital and, and networks factored 
uh, into the COVID-19 responses to homelessness in New York region? Absolutely. I mean, I think I think the response actually really demonstrated it well. Um, I think we learned that it's possible to act fast and innovate with the right actors around the table. So, you know, there were multi-sector uh, COVID coordination tables that were formed in York um, and geographic coordinated tables in Toronto. And the players, and these are players both from the, the serving sector, you know, the services sector, um, government and other funders like United Way, we all came together. And the role in coming together was to look at and how do we collaboratively make decisions? Uh, where do we put the priority on the funding that, that was coming available? As we know, there was lots of funding coming available, both from the federal and the provincial level to help support the you know people impacted by the pandemic. And so these tables really helped uh, to not only identify uh, what the issues were, but also collectively, I think, not necessarily for the first time, um, but maybe for the first time where we had the funders and the tables and the agencies all sitting around at the same table, having this conversation about what were the immediate needs, what were the short-term needs that we had to act on fast, what were the more intermediate needs and what were the longer-term needs that, that on the longer term that were going to happen. And I would say, um, you know, and I think you can to attest to this, Michael, that, you know, um, the discussions that happened at those tables, when funding came out, we, the funders were funding what the people at the table were saying was needed. And we listened. And, and I'm not saying that we didn't do that before. We did. But it was very different this time with COVID. And I think because we had to act nimbly, we had to act quickly in order to get the response out. So really funders and, and you know, decision makers um, really had to step up and, and really listen to the people that were on the ground and telling them and telling us what really need to happen. So we saw that happened. And I think, as I said a little bit earlier, and I'll, I'll repeat it again for the sake of repeating it. I think this COVID and these clusters of tables and these and this network of coming together, it even shifted more our thinking of a client belonging to the whole system as opposed to one individual because we thought about those still living in encampments. Unfortunately, uh, and I say unfortunately because, you know, there were a lot more people, especially in York region that we know of, and I know it's happened otherwise too, there was a lot of new people into homelessness during COVID. And so, um, and as you know, Michael, we, we created uh, what we call transitional shelters, both in the for the broader homeless population and for those individuals experiencing interpartner violence. And it was an opportunity for them to be able to go there, self-isolate for 14 days, and then they receive services within there in terms of wraparound supports and looking at what the alternative was. And for sure, as a system, we did not want these individuals to return to homelessness once they once they had self-isolated. So we really wrapped those supports around them to get them housed. And I think what we learned during COVID is that housing an individual is the is the surest way to reduce the impact of the pandemic and the spread. Um, but inadvertently, I think what this did, and it shines the light on it, is that some of our hardest to house individuals, those with multiple health and mental health issues, 
they kind of got left behind a little bit because we had to so quickly house these people that were probably homeless for the first time um, cause, and, and in some ways they're easier to house. And so our, our really what I refer to as our persons experiencing chronic homelessness, um, I think, uh, you know, went back into encampment areas more often than not. And so, you know, so we have to come together again and think about how do we move forward on this again? How do we make them a priority and a focus back as we do this work? But I think, you know, the pandemic, when we, when we talk about, you know, a couple of the other examples, uh, you know, we had what we learned very quickly when everything shut down, you know, all the restaurants closed, all the Tim Hortons closed, all the Walmarts closed when everybody was shut down. And so our persons that were living rough lost access to bathrooms, to showers, to food. We did hear about a couple of break-ins in stores in on Old Main Street and Newmarket because someone saw food in the window and they desperately wanted food because they had. And so when our network came together, we said we can't do drop-ins because you know because of the restrictions, but we need to create drop-bys. And so within three weeks, we had two drop-bys open so that our persons who were sleeping rough had access to meals, could charge up their phones and that. And so I think, you know, it was, I think that was just a clear evidence of how we responded. Um, and I think the other big one, uh, you know, and, and I think Blue Doors has to take some of the credit for this is, you know, is the 200 Doors campaign and the Landlord Collaborative. You know, it's a collaborative of eight organizations that came together knowing that we had to get so many people housed during this pandemic. And it was the right thing to do. Um, you know, I think us, all of us in the service industry knew that that was the right thing to do, but now the money was flowing to allow us to do that. And so, you know, as you, as you know, from your own stats, this collaborative has housed over 400 individuals. So in my mind, these are 400 individuals that have a safe roof over their head that are starting to make connections with their neighbors. And that, you know, back to my analogy, they have a warm blanket wrapped around them. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think we, we, we're pretty good as a sector, um, you know, working together, but this forced us even more so to your point to work even closer together and work quicker. I mean, people can't wait. Uh, the situation was dire and there's a lot of limitations. So we had to be innovative and all take a piece of it. And you're right that the 200 doors campaign, uh, which was borrowed from a group in Calgary, from the Calgary drop-in center, uh, was fantastic. Cause we, you know, instead of competing for landlords, we work together uh, with landlords to get more people housed. And, and the hope is that that continues far after uh, the pandemic is over. And lots of lessons learned from the pandemic. And speaking of learning, where can people go, uh, Chris, to, to find that, to take a look at this amazing and impactful report, the Social Capital Report, and find out more about the great work that the United Way is doing in the GTA? Well, I mean, the first uh, the first place to go is our website. <laughs> uh, we house all of our reports on our website, and you'll find the social capital report there on our website. And but also that website has all of our previous uh, research papers that we've done. Uh, talks about all of the the great work that our network of agencies are doing across Peel, Toronto, and York Region. So there's a wealth of information in there, uh, specific to York Region and the work we're doing on reaching home. Uh, 
if you go to the Homeless Hub uh, and go to the York page, we actually house a lot of information there specific uh, to reaching home. Um, Isabel, is there anything else that you want to add? Uh, maybe just to give people the website. So it's www.unitedwaygt.org and you'll find a, one of the tabs on the top will take you to the research reports. Well, that's wonderful. This was so informative and I think uh, so many great messages and findings. Thank you both so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Wow, Sophie, I, I never really think of all the pieces they mentioned around social capital, right, as social capital and how much it matters in, in uh, helping our most vulnerable, but it absolutely does. And this report, and I encourage people to go to the website, take a look. We couldn't go uh, through the report in detail, of course, with the time we had, but check out this report. It's impactful. It's important information. And uh, so happy that uh, the United Way was able to do this and share this. Absolutely. You know, I, it, so much of what was being talked about, I was thinking back to my time when I was a reporter work, uh, writing on homelessness issues out here in BC. And, you know, uh, one of the biggest themes you come across was the siloed efforts where uh, organizations or service providers aren't working together. Um, and so it's so great to hear uh, coordinated access being talked about because that's a really big deal to, you know, to CAH and, to, and I know uh, what you folks are doing out in New York region because um, it's, it's just such, an, such a great system and again it's like why weren't we doing this 15 years ago but you know it takes time to learn these lessons it takes takes time to get that funding so it's really exciting to see when these efforts are happening the you know the um results that we're seeing is really encouraging i think yeah and i think something to what christine was saying too is that the coordinated access and to your point has always made sense i don't know if it was always something that that funders even encouraged and now they are they're seeing the benefits mm -hmm. of that they're at those tables instead of just funding they're at those tables in those discussions uh pushing that forward so it's, it's nice to see everyone on board with this you know I, I, another great episode two great guests important work check this out share it with friends subscribe and we will see you next time on the way home. See you then. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.